Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. As always, my good buddy CK, right here in a co-pilot seat. Today we're going to continue our dairy series with an amazing guest that's got a very interesting program to try to start rebooting the grazing culture in the dairy industry. Please welcome to the show, Joe Tamondel. So Joe, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. I've been uh, a fan of your podcasts and uh, looking forward to visiting for an hour. Or an hour and a half, whatever you got today. Well, however we want to, however <laughs> long we want to go. Yep. I don't know. I've had a couple of people kind of get a little cross with me because, uh, you know, I had, we released a couple that were only an hour and they're like, hey, it was only an hour. Where's the, where's the other half of it? Like, we got to work around your guys' schedule. It's just all we have sometimes. <laughs> yep. So, Joe, tell us about who you are, where you're at, and a little bit about your background, if you can. If you can. Well, sure, sure. We can we can jump in at it. So, uh, I live in north central Wisconsin, grew up here on a small dairy farm. Uh, and actually, the dairy farm started grazing cattle uh, in the 80s. Uh, so, that was my folks' farm. Uh, I went to school uh, to become an agriculture instructor, uh, met my wife. Uh, which is great. We we're both ag teachers for several years uh, and vocational FFA advisors uh, also. So we did that for, I think I did that for four years. Uh, and they came back to my home neighborhood and purchased a farm uh, mm-hmm. and just a very modest farm to get started with about 30 cows, 30, 40 cows. And, and really managed grazing is what brought us back and what allowed us to come back uh, just simply because of the business model, the economic model of it. Uh, you know, you're able to purchase a dairy that wasn't heavily invested in infrastructure. We didn't have to have a ton of equipment. Uh, so we could really use our limited equity, uh, which we had limited equity uh, in purchasing cattle, which are mm-hmm. probably the most appreciable type of a thing and really focus on managing grass for as many days as you possibly can. Uh, and just all the efficiencies that managed grazing brings. Uh, so that brought us to the farm in 1998 is where we got started. Uh, and, you know, the farms, well, they grew over time. Uh, so, you know, by 2010, you know, to jump into this piece of it, by 2010, the farm was about 150 cows. Uh, we're fairly seasonal yet and, and very much of a grazing base type of a system, shipping milk conventionally. And when we looked at it at that point in our career, we says, okay, how do we keep investing? into a managed grazing dairy because obviously the efficiencies we don't want to give up are dry matter going through those cows on grass. Uh, and, you know, we run 70, 75% dry matter uh, through those cows and that's what we want to keep doing. So if, if we would have done what, uh, you know, the, the industry standard was or what we learned in college, we would have right. doubled the size of that farm and we would have gone to 300 cows. Uh, we had about a 320 acre grazing platform at that time. And, you know, we could have bumped her up to 300 cows. It would have worked. You know, economically, it would have worked. You know, we would have dumped in, you know, and invested more money into uh, milking systems, you know, cattle facilities, manure storage. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, the numbers still would have worked. Uh, and then as we looked ahead, too, we say, okay, so if we do that, uh, fine. But really, our dry matter from grass is going to come down, so our cost of production is most likely going to go up. Our feed costs are going to go up, and we may right. only have you know, 40%, 50% dry matter from grass coming into them. So, but then as you look at the progression of dairy, 
uh, and of the business and to scale uh, through the status quo, about seven years, you probably have to double that again. So you'd take that 300 cow dairy and you'd add another 300 cows on and you'd call the concrete trucks and the engineers and you put on facilities and more feed bunk storage and more manure storage and et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you know how that goes. Yeah. I mean, the train has started. Uh, so then there we'd be at 600 cows and maybe 20% dry matter coming from grass, if that. And we're really going to change our whole model. And, and the reality is by the time we're ready to retire, we probably would have doubled it again, and you'd have a 1,200-cow setup. There'd probably be zero grass on the platform. Maybe you'd run heifers out there. Uh, it would look a whole different system uh, is what it would look like. And you may have $10 million in infrastructure and concrete and feed and manure storage and cattle housing that's, that's depreciating there. And then when I'm ready to cash out or when we're ready to cash out, you know, we're still not – it's big – you could maybe turn it to the next generation, but it'd be difficult, mm-hmm. but I guarantee it'd be very difficult to turn it to the second generation. Um, but typically our buyer for something like that would have been either very large dairy or very large cropping agriculture. And we'd most likely sell the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, house included, leave with the dog, uh, and it would be over. Uh, and then, you know, you've got, you know, everything else, tax implications and everything that would go with that. So, so long story short, in 2010, as we looked at that, using grass, you know, the mindset, we said, you know, instead of doubling this thing, uh, why don't we take these efficiencies and duplicate it? Uh, because there are, in these rural neighborhoods, there are these 200-acre farms, 150, 200, 300-acre farms, um, and um, they don't have successors necessarily. Right. Uh, and they are ripe for coming into and converting them to a managed grazing system uh, and running them as efficiently as we possibly can. It's a whole different management system and that's even human resources and employee management and everything. Uh, but it works. So that's what we did. So in 2010, we duplicated uh, and built another 150 cow dairy. Uh, and, uh, and subsequently we just set up another one here last year. So We've got three of these. They're 150 to 200 cow units that we've got. So the idea is, you know, maybe we'll milk a thousand cows someday. It just isn't going to be in one location. Right. Uh, And then when we're ready to retire, rather than selling the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel, can we actually slowly divest out of this beast? uh, And can each one of those things live on its own, not be too big of an investment where a family cannot afford it? Uh, and then if we're really good, can we even be the bank for one of those things and slowly transition out of it? So, I mean, this may go through the retirement uh, in different equity earnings, share milking type of systems. Uh, and then at the end of the day, can we leave two, three, four uh, upper middle class independent businesses in the neighborhood, uh, you know, versus, you know, uh, a different profile of agriculture in the neighborhood because when when you have these small businesses uh, and when you've got the opportunities for independent people to own these businesses and be the stewards of the land, it's a real win 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 type of mm-hmm. thing. Just in the economic impact uh, of buying products, supplies, services uh, to you know kids attending schools to providing leadership in the communities and, and there's just a whole variety of things I think that are terribly important. Uh, and, and even in, in agriculture in general, when we look at how vertically integrated things are, 
I think we need to look at these decentralized systems of scale. Uh, you know, not looking at, you know, how can we make these efficient? And and these are some of the things that we're looking at here. So, so that's that's where I'm at on the dairy background. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what we've also done and what we can visit about a little bit too is about that 2010, you know, and, and really looking at these rural communities and, okay, what's happening to them? You know, yes, there's still, there's jobs in there. You know, agriculture is getting bigger and bigger. It's getting more consolidated. Uh, and and what what is happening to rural communities and, and what's happening to these farms? And mm-hmm. how do you slow that down and how do you stop it? And really, if you can take a look at what is the solution to it, and it's really managed grazing and regenerative type of agriculture that could potentially do it. And is it this business model that could do it? Uh, so, so what is holding us back from that? People, 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 people run. I mean, it is the key. Skilled people, empowered people, people with opportunities are so important. So when you look at the management structure of a 200 cow managed grazing dairy, for instance, uh, it isn't like a 2,000 cow dairy. You've got to bring an individual on there that doesn't know just the nutrition, doesn't know just the herd health or the reproductive piece. Uh, in, in large dairy, we're actually able to come in just like an industrial model and break out and chunk out pieces of these and create full-time jobs where people just focus on them. Mm-hmm. Manage grazing regenerative type of agriculture, you need an individual who can come in there and understand grass, who can understand soils, who can understand cow health and, and, and human resources, uh, and, and can fix the stuff that they broke at the end of the day. So you really need that that individual that is really wearing a lot of hats again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the problem is you can't teach this in a classroom. You can't teach it in a post-secondary institution or institution of higher education. These are things that you just, and this comes from a teaching background. There are some things you just need to experience to learn. So how do you train that next generation of farmers? Let's take a chapter out of the playbook of the guilds, and that's registered apprenticeship. Uh, So the best trainers are the people that have done this for 20 years. Those are your experts uh, in all reality. They're the ones that are going to tell you where those cows need to go, what the weather patterns look like, uh, you know, how to balance the proper nutrition with animal health, uh, how to find the markets, how to deal with your local infrastructure uh, and supply and service people. Uh, Where are you going to find uh, the human resource profile that you need. These are the people with the boots on the ground that are really going to be able to teach you how to do it and teach you how to do it in your region. Uh, because there is no cookie cutter in agriculture and production agriculture, and there shouldn't be. Uh, you know, everything changes, and it's different, and every region is different. Uh, so in, in 2010, uh, we worked on coming together and creating a registered apprenticeship and managed grazing dairy to really try to create that platform uh, for individuals that want to get involved in dairy farming, uh, learn more in dairy farming, whether it be a management level or all the way up to ownership level, uh, and then to create that platform for farmers that were looking at not only bringing on good managers or good people onto their farm, uh, but to find that equity earner or that potential person that could take over their farm. And, and we created on that platform of, of registered apprenticeship. So it started in Wisconsin. 
uh, and we pulled together industry people and uh, farmers and created a complete set of curriculum. Uh, so it's, we did a full-blown DACOM, a developing a curriculum uh, around this. And it's odd. This was the first one in agriculture, which is surprising. Oh, yeah. You know, as old as agriculture is, you know, this is the first actual registered apprenticeship anywhere in agriculture. So And paid, so we went, right? So that's also paid. what surprised me. Yeah. Yep. yep. It's earn while you learn. It's just like electricians or bricklayers or the plumbers. Uh, and let's create that systematic educational type of a platform. Um, so the the apprenticeship uh, turned into a two-year, 4,000-hour training, uh, paid training while you're on that dairy farm. About 3,700 hours follow an actual job book It's a, or training guidelines, but that is a physical book that you can sit down with your mentor farmer uh, and go through and you check off everything from enterprise budgets to raising calves to equipment maintenance to parlor management to whatever it may be. And we've got it all fleshed out in there. Uh, and then 300 hours of it are related instruction, which is actual classroom work. And the classroom work is taking place uh, on a platform that we pulled together called the Managed Grazing Innovation Center. And the Managed Grazing Innovation Center is its own entity, basically, which provides virtual instruction uh, in regenerative managed grazing dairy. Uh, and it provides this, the classes uh, that we require for the registered apprenticeship. Uh, so at this point, uh, dairy grazing apprenticeship uh, is um, in 15 states. So in 2015, we took it national and we registered with the Federal Department of Labor. And wow. we built a complete cloud-based website to manage it, uh, to manage uh, mentor and apprentice pairs, uh, as well as a component on that website to really try to match uh, individuals uh, that wanted to get into managed grazing dairy, as well as farmers that were looking to employ somebody. Uh, so we don't actually place people, but we provide that platform where a dairy farmer can go out and hire an individual. Because first, these are employees uh, and then we bring them to a much more structured workforce uh, training program. Uh, so, so that's a little bit about me, and that's where we're at right now today with, uh, you know, kind of a balance of, you know, the, the dairy grazing apprenticeship uh, taking plenty of time, uh, and it's very exciting, and then uh, dabbling a little bit in some dairy farming too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you wear lots of hats. So do you get lots of demand for the, the dairy grazing apprenticeship? You know, we do, so we've got um, at most time between 175 and 200 individuals that are on our website that'll put mm-hmm. a profile on it. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we're right up around 200 dairy farms that are approved. So mm-hmm. in order for a dairy farm to get approved to the actual apprenticeship, uh, um, the, a farmer will come to the platform and say, yep, I've got a profile of managed grazing dairy, and I'm very interested in either bringing an existing employee through uh, or to uh, try to find somebody that I can hire on as an employee and bring them through a more systematic, you know, workforce training type of a, of a program. Uh, so uh, once we bring those individuals together, and actually each farm is approved, so we've got education coordinators who are basically field staff out in all the regions where we, we work with. And we work with administrative partners from NGOs to university uh, that are, that are helping uh, on in these regions. 
Okay. Um, but yes, each of these farms are, are approved and then they come to the platform and then we help them try to find, you know, that, that right employer, that individual, and then provide the actual oversight and the training. Yep. How many apprentices do you, you have per year? Do you think? Or do you so know? Right, right now, I think we have 44 apprentices that are formerly okay. in the program. Okay. Uh, Yep. And they're, you know, they're coming in and out. We've, we've graduated. Uh, I think we're right up against 50 that we've graduated and it's, it's an intense program. It's not like taking a class for a week. No, uh, you know, this is it's thousands of real. hours. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty real. It's full-time work. It is full on dairying. Uh, it's dirty. It's long days. It's short days. It's cold weather. It is, you know, everything. I mean, it's, we're really trying to give these individuals the experience. Um, and, um, we do it for two years also so that an individual can see at least two years of a managed grazing season. Cause obviously there's no standard year. Every single one changes. I've been in this for 20 years and everyone is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just a little bit of a taste, uh, into, you know, what this, what this business is really looking like. Yeah. So if I wanted to sign up myself up as an apprentice, what, where would I go? I go to your website. What is. Yeah. You go, you can just Google dairy grazing apprenticeship, uh, mm-hmm. or else type right into your, your browser D G a it's a hyphen national.org. So D G a hyphen national.org. Uh, What's the process? Lead- yeah. Is there yeah. like a time of year that you look to fill in applicants or is it as needed basis? Is it seasonal? Yeah, that's a good question. And because of the platform, people can enter on and exit whenever and wherever mm-hmm. they want, really. So we do have a lot more of a surge that comes in in the springtime uh, as people are looking for you know summertime type people. Because obviously, you know, you, still a lot of the farms are fairly seasonal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got that springtime type of a flush where you're calving and, uh, and you're getting your paddock set up and everything going. Uh, so that's usually when people start looking. Uh, so there's a few more that'll come on then, okay. but we get them throughout the year. Uh, and we get them in all age ranges too, which is really great to see because as a registered apprenticeship, you typically need to have a high school diploma and be 18 years of age. Uh, so we've got everybody from that level all the way up to, mid twenties, young families, uh, and then even up to second career individuals that have always wanted to get into dairy and just haven't really had that, that I call it a platform or that path opportunity almost yep. too. Yeah. To yeah. Do it. And, and it's not a, it's not a silver bullet for everybody. No. I mean, it just, it's still, it's, it takes plenty. You know, we, we still have about a 40% attrition rate of individuals. Okay. That, that was my next question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's the nature of the beast. But, you know, when you look at registered apprenticeship through the, all the industries, you know, they do figure about 50, sometimes up to 60% of an attrition rate of people that just don't make it through all the steps uh, and, and completing the whole program. Uh, so yeah. it, it shows that it, it, even somebody that doesn't make it through, in many cases, that's still a success because you've got an individual that was able to test the waters and try this yes. before they dove into, you know, $500,000 beginning farmer loan and, and went in up to their eyeballs into something they didn't know exactly what they're doing. Oh yeah. So yeah. Total win-win. I, I think even 
you know, spending X amount of dollars on a degree. So like mine is in animal science and plant science. And I have friends who did the same thing with me in, you know, five plus years later, they're doing nothing in animal science because they decided they hated the, you know, livestock production world and they'd rather, uh, you know, work a city job. And so I think it's, it is like, you don't realize what you're committing to because it looks good on paper, but when you actually have to do the it's different. What are you going to say, Brian? Do you think that's because of uh, the way the education system worked and and what that exposed you to as far as agriculture while you were in college? Um, yeah, I, I also, yes, so I do, but I also think that I force myself to be exposed to, like, hard work. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I do. I do think that it depends on how much you're willing to, like, really learn what you want to do, but I also think... Uh, not to rag on any of my friends who are listening to this, but I think that you think that you're just going to be handed opportunities instead of have to work for them because you have a degree. And I think there's a sense of entitlement with some people where it's like, you're not going to get handed this senior level nutrition job out of college. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. I I can agree with that. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of agree with that mindset, you know, that that was a myth that they were really pushing when, you know, our generation yeah. was in college. Like, oh, you'll never get a good job if you don't get a degree. And if you get a degree, you're, you know, you'll get a good job. I even remember one time that was like, if you get a degree, your chances of getting a job that make over a hundred thousand dollars a year are, you know, this much percent better. And it's almost like everybody rushed to college and got degrees and it's saturated now. And a lot of the a lot of the things that we're realizing that we need in the world, like grazing dairy and, you know, regenerative agriculture, that just hasn't been, you know, there's no education system and there's no, there's no training pipeline to start producing these people. Um, Technical assistance too, right? So like the guild model that Joe, you mentioned, like it just is non-existent anywhere in agriculture. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're hundred percent correct. I think those are really things you see. And, and it always, you know, we could arguably say it, it always was existent. It was just intergenerational oh, yeah. within the yeah. family. So, you know, but then if you don't have that intergenerational successor, uh, now what do you do? And mm-hmm. I think that's really what we're diving into. We're trying to create some of those solutions. Yeah, uh, yeah. That too, and uh, what I think is common, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but usually dairy families who are raised that way, a lot of times they don't want to continue the business, right? They want to go do their own thing is what I'm hearing. And so there's people like me who did wasn't raised in agriculture, who I see the culture and the lifestyle and I like it. And that's my opportunity and I want to create that. So uh, does that make sense what I said? Yeah, I, th- I think there is something to that. I, yeah. You know, and, and I think, and getting back to some things that Brian talked about, and it's just some of the status quo about, okay, you go to college, you get a real job. Yeah. Uh, this really felt like it was a lot of uh, the underlying uh, advice that was coming from so many farm families. Farming yeah. is tough. And they're like, you know what? My kids are going to be successful. And success doesn't mean staying on this farm. It means you go out and get a real job. <laughs> you go and get an education and, mm-hmm. and they measured success by getting those kids onto that next level, onto the real job. 
and and two things there is, you know, I, I think the dairy industry has propagated that a little bit, you know, as it's developed over the years unintentionally. I mean, dairy industry is incredibly successful, uh, and um, and it's very uh, you know, streamlined and very efficient. Uh, but I think underneath that, that has closed a lot of doors for a lot of this, um, you know, entrepreneurial mindset. It has closed some of these doors, uh, you know, for allowing individuals to get involved or wanting to get involved. I think those are just some of the things that we're seeing there. I mean, dairy is, it's transitioned, uh, and it's, it's scaling so much. And I think that's, I think the the problems are several fold. Yeah. Probably. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's so. a fairly high barrier of entry due to, you know, regulatory burden, regulatory cost and, and whatnot. Well, yeah. And, and a couple of things. So, you know, uh, getting back and then, and then we could talk to some of these barriers to entry too, uh, is, you know, getting back to education, uh, and I do like talking about education too, a little bit too, but I, I do think that when we look at this, this, this apprenticeship type of education or skilled workforce type of education, there's a huge need for it. Uh, and it is something that is becoming a little bit more status quo, which is nice to see because I think we've seen what happens if, you know, we don't have that workforce trained in some of these skilled type of a trades are incredibly important. Uh, and they can be very worthwhile, very gratifying, uh, not only personally, but even financially, too. And I think our, our our generations of workers need to realize that. So I think there's a ton of opportunities, you know, within this. And especially when you look at the registered apprenticeship type of a world, I mean, they say, earn while you learn. Uh, that's a big deal. When mm-hmm. you, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to see it in dairy where you're going up to different pay grades based on, you know, the, the things, the skill sets that you've learned, uh, you know, we're not there, you know, dairy is very immature when it comes to an agriculture, when it comes to recognizing the importance of skilled, skilled trades. So, you know, just to run the apprenticeship and hopefully we'll get there, you know, that is kind of a, a dream to get there in, in a lot of the guilds, it is the, it's the industry, you know, that basically supports these training programs. I mean, you mm-hmm. in a lot of these apprenticeships, I mean, the industry is throwing in to create these multi-million dollar training centers because they realize the importance of it. Um, and, and, and checkoff money would come into it, uh, you know, through, you know, either union wages or just playing part of, you know, the, the trade that you're involved in and they invest into that next generation. You know, we're not there with dairy yet, uh, obviously. And I think we're a long ways away from it, but in all reality, should it happen? I absolutely think so. I, I don't see why, you know, part of a checkoff 10 cents or whatever is going up there. Why shouldn't two of that go to training that next generation? Uh, you know, why shouldn't mentor trainers uh, be throwing a bone for that? Uh, why couldn't we offer free classes uh, for that and just do a much more systematic approach of bringing in you know, that next generation of, of dairy? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the important thing though, that we really want to do, uh, is to bring in this type of a dairy farmer. Also, I think this regenerative type of a dairy farmer, uh, is very important to bring in, uh, the mix of things, not that one has got to be better than the other or one right. man better than the other, 
let's just not let's not go there, but let's just look at it from a strength of the industry and a diversity of management type of practices and a diversity of consumers and what they want. And why not give it to them? I mean, if we're going to do dairy, let's let's give them that you know type of product that they're looking for. Uh, not that it is bashing another type of product within the right. Let's give them let's give them what they want. Uh, so I think there's a huge amount of entrepreneurial opportunities within there uh, to do that, and and we need to really look at and and develop the sector. So I think that's where where the sector could really bring value. Oh yeah, I mean, beef yeah. needs this really badly. So it almost sounds like we need to do a beef grazing apprenticeship. So <laughs> Brian and I will be open. kidding. No, <laughs> no I we I've got way too much to do. I can't <laughs> I can't head up that program. But somebody listening to this podcast needs to start a regenerative beef grazing apprenticeship program. Yeah. Well, there's a few. So the um, Quivera Coalition. Yeah, they do a really good job. They do mm-hmm. a nice job. I don't know if that one is registered. Right. So there, there's informal and there's formal. Uh, you know, there are a few more registered apprenticeships that are popping up. PASA uh, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, and they're one of our administrative partners. I'll give them a shout out also. Uh, but they've created one in vegetable production. Uh, there's also been another vegetable production one created in Wisconsin here also. Um, and I don't know if Maine has got one too, but they're starting to pop up a little bit more. Uh, and and uh, recently here also within the conventional dairy world, uh, there's been some rumblings. I've had some people reach out, you know, looking at how do you create that registered type of apprenticeship just to create that more systematic approach uh, to workforce training. And I can't agree more. I think it's terribly important. So, you know, and the other, and not to just keep babbling, but we talked about some of those, <laughs> my bad, sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. This is nice. Cause it's like, you know, I, I, like any awkward pauses. Yeah, you're good. You know, well, you, we, we, we talked a little bit of, on these barriers, you know, to getting into farming. And I think that links into uh, you know, some of these conversations that we're just having and, and these barriers that are getting in. Yeah, there, there's regulatory barriers and that, but just the reality of what, what's happened to dairy. Um, and I'll oh, talk yeah. specifically on dairy over the last even five, 10 years uh, and just the costs to get in. And that is cost of everything from land to buildings, to infrastructure, uh, to equipment, uh, to human resources, everything. It just, I mean, the, the what you got to pony up to get in uh, just flat costs a lot of money. And as we're looking at even continuing to keep the next generation going in dairy, I think we need to take a really fearless look at uh, you know the idea of, of scalability with integrity. Because as you look at a lot of these smaller dairies, and yeah, they may be in a value added or they may be in a oh, type of a market. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, put that against a big mortgage payment if... I was going to say, what are they passing on exactly. to the next, you know, next generation? Yeah, you know, I mean, let's let's really take that, that uh, a certain scale of dairy. This is what's closing the doors on some of the berries. It's very difficult to do it on 40 or 50 or 60 cows, even in an organic or an all-grass market, because just flat you don't have enough hundred weights to go around. Even if your margin might be $10 a hundred weight, 
you still need more hundred weights to pay for the four to five thousand dollar an acre land for the piece of equipment that costs where it used to be you know twenty thousand is now forty thousand uh, dollars. Just the cost of family living keeps going up and up and up. And I think we need to take a really close look at that. And even in a lot of our pricing formulas and our value added uh, products, I think the price for people can be profitable if they got the majority of it paid for. I think if you really want to look at true sustainability, uh, it needs to be priced at a spot uh, where that thing can be transitioned, where you can put an actual debt load against it. Uh, and those are some things that, that we need to look at. And that is fortunately or unfortunately where some of this drive and need to scale comes from. And that's so much why we've seen, you know, a lot of dairy and a lot of these industries scale so much. They just have to have enough units to spread all of that investment over. Right. And so, yeah. And so we had a previous episode that we released in this dairy series was with a conventional dairy person, Dan. Um, he does robotic milkers and, um, and he also has to support two to three different families. And so him, his brother's family and, and kind of his dad too. So, you know, we were kind of trying to challenge his paradigm of like, maybe you could, you can start grazing, your replacement heifers and that's where you start and it's just for him it was like it's just such a challenge for me to even want to make that risk because what am I going to lose right what would you say to that go ahead Brian add on what you want well you know it it I would say he was more challenging us (laughs) well yeah right he was like this is why I do what I do right and yeah and you know kind of like we said last week you know all things are appropriate in context yep yeah. Well, well, I tell you, you know, at a certain point, uh, you basically need to pick the horse you're going to ride in a way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in all reality, when you've got that kind of an investment and, and we go through conversation, I'll have conversations with people who say, well, we're going to convert farmers over to manage grazing. Uh, so we're going to take these large farms and, and I think we can convert them. Uh, several things are happening here. You know, number one is these Farm like that, you're so invested uh, capitally uh, and emotionally too, but but from a capital standpoint, uh, that you can't afford to unravel that. It's just a nature of the beast. You know, when you start getting ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars in animals stuck in the land and, and equipment and buildings and infrastructure, you need to turn milk right. pounds per hundred weight. You you can't unravel that model unless you've got the whole thing paid for uh, mm-hmm. and you want to jump into a different type of a market. It's just economically, it's very difficult. And yeah. where we're at with dairy is, you know, more and more people in this over the next last decade and even two decades, they've made that decision. They've, they've moved to that more intensive dairy model, that scaled dairy model. And I totally get it. I mean, the infrastructure is there. Uh, the infrastructure in regards to the training, the education, the industry support, uh, the, the cropping systems and tools and equipment, and it's all set up to do it. Uh, you know, I always made the, the comment that it's harder for me uh, to go out and find that support team to build a 200-cow managed grazing dairy than it would be to go out and build a 2,000-cow dairy. 
Uh, there just are not, it's hard to do a feasibility study. There are not the consultants, the planners, the, the HR type of oversight. The, the systems just aren't necessarily in place. And, and it comes right down to even cropping and feed storage. And, and so many of these resources that are there, you know, they're there in, in scalable dairy. Uh, they're not necessarily there in regenerative dairy. And I think those are some real voids. Uh, and, and I call them opportunities uh, yeah. that we need to really be looking at you know, down mm-hmm. the road, um, you know, with these types of farms. So, so yeah, so I would, I would definitely, I understand exactly where these, where these farmers, these business people are. Uh, it's hard to unravel that thing. And you just economically, it's very difficult and you can't yeah. do it. And I think it's a valuable insight for the listeners who aren't in dairy and, and want to make, uh, like maybe a judgment of like, why aren't you wanting to move to regenerative or like it's, it's you're, you're losing profit by not being regenerative or, you know, other things. And it's like, it's just not that easy. It really isn't. Yeah. Um, finding, yeah, a, finding a place to start that makes sense mm-hmm. on a scale that's manageable with, you know, your time and labor commitments already, that's going to move the needle somehow but at the same time is also small enough that it can fail and not take you out of business. You know, I was fortunate. I found that, you know, I, I had that available on my ranch and I get not everybody can, not everybody has that, you know, has that freedom to be able to say, Oh, okay, well I got this little pasture over here that we can experiment in. And if it's messed up, it's messed up. And it's only 250 acres, not a big deal. I get not everybody can do that. But, you know, it, it's finding a place, you know, a way for some of these conventional guys to start pulling that lever and start making a transition. I think that's what we need to, you know, that's where we need to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's, um, yeah, a couple of other things, too. I, I, I agree. I think, I think there's some potential there. There's also something to be said that, and this is what we're trying to address with, the apprenticeship also is how do you break down these barriers and how do you bring them in? How do you address, uh, you know, these uh, type of issues? Uh, the tough thing with transitioning also is in getting farms to transition. Uh, and, uh, I hope this isn't taken the wrong way necessarily either, but you know, you, you've got farmers that are very capital invested, uh, into a system, and you've got them that are very emotionally invested in also. And yeah. it takes time to get your head around what this means. So even if you could unwind that from a business capital standpoint, it still takes time to, to transition that. Uh, the other reality is, as we're looking at the solution to, you know, or, or getting more people on the ground and, and manage grazing, and a lot of people look at it and say, okay, I think it's a matter of converting uh, a lot of, a lot of farmers. Okay, maybe. But the other reality is, what's the average age of farmers? It's like 58 years old. It can take 10 years or higher. You know, so you're, you're, you may get somebody to convert it, and they're at possibly toward the twilight of their career. Uh, so is, and you can invest a ton of money in there. So this is what we look at a little bit with the apprenticeship is, um, let's start with the people that have got 25 years or 30 years of farming in front of them. So let's just do a total reset on this thing. Uh, and let's focus on the new farmers and the beginning farmers and the transitioning type of farmers that aren't vested into a model. So just from a straight economic impact. So 
where I would really like to see this all happen and where I would like to see acreages transition and this regenerative market sector be filled, it's with the next generation uh, that have got this trajectory ahead of them. Uh, so that's um, that's some of the strategies of the philosophy that we look at, well, a little bit with this uh, and, and that I think we can provide. Uh, now, when you look at breaking down some of these barriers too of land, cost of land, I think that's where you need to look at some of these you know, real business models out there of, okay, how do you, how do you control an asset without having to bring that whole elephant onto your balance sheet uh, and, and buy the whole thing? You know, how do you, how do you do it? So I think we need to very innovatively look uh, forward here uh, in regards to, to finance and innovative finance and how can this work? Uh, is it coming from traditional finance? Uh, is there a way for capital to come in and build an asset and hold an asset and lease an asset uh, to a new farmer that's coming in or an existing farmer that's coming in for a certain amount of years and then allow them to start buying it? Uh, I think we really need to look at some of these financial type of mechanisms and instruments out there, and we may need to build a good number of them. Uh, if you look at countries that have got 20 and plus $1,000 an acre land value, some of those pieces are in place. Uh, and as, as we look at the, the dairy grazing apprenticeship platform, some of the thoughts and the strategy with this is, okay, let's create that farmer network. Let's create that farmer network that has got the ability to build people, to build skill sets, to identify the best of the best and to give them the opportunities they need because at the end of the day, this is what's going to de-risk everything from capital uh, to environmental markets to consumer markets to whatever it may be to just plain land management. Uh, So the idea now is, okay, can we go out there? Can we build these innovative finance systems? Can we build those funds that really want to see regenerative agriculture come in uh, and it may not be government policy. It may be full-on private type of investment capital that may want to come into this with a, with a level of integrity. This isn't a land grab or anything like that, but can we create those mechanisms which can hold assets, uh, get a return on those assets uh, while somebody gets the cash flow and the equity together uh, and is able to ultimately purchase that thing out? So these are, these are models that we look at and are, are very interested in trying to create uh, through this systematic kind of a workforce training process, process because we're looking for the best of the best that could come in and, and, and have gone through the, the rigors of a two-year uh, program and probably more it's going to take than that, obviously, before they're ready to roll, but to have those types of opportunities. And I think that's where you could start moving the needle So let's focus on this new generation. Uh, Let's focus on business structures and infrastructure within dairy uh, and land management and even other uh, livestock sectors. Uh, And can we create these finance mechanisms to to get them that runway um, and get them going? Uh, So that's a piece of this. Knowing people. People is what de-risk it. Networking and people, it's connections is what's making this community work. I think absolutely. So, absolutely. you uh, let's let's talk about let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your dairy. 
So what kind of cows sure. do you have on your dairy? So we are running, uh, we're mainly New Zealand Frisian. Uh, you know, we've started a lot of different crosses. We've gone through a variety of different things. Uh, but predominantly New Zealand Frisian is what we're running on the dairies right now. Uh, so there are these 1,000, 1,100-pound, 1,200-pound cows uh, designed. They're coming from grazing base types of genetics. Uh, the farms are relatively seasonal. Uh, well, they're probably 80% of the calving is done in, a, in an eight-week window in the spring. Oh, nice. Uh, because we are, yeah, because we are in, in these northern type of climates, it is a bit of a dance, you know, because we still need to have infrastructure. We still need to have facilities and buildings. Uh, and so we will still run a fall freshening, you know, type. So it's, uh, it's you know, we still try to maximize grass as much as possible, but you need to plan for that off season. You need to plan for winter. Uh, yeah. At, Take uh, Christmas off, actually. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... So that's kind of the profile on, on the farms, uh, how they look with the cows. Uh, again, very much a grazing platform. I, so I, I've heard that there's some folks up in your part of the world that use mobile milking parlors. Is that something you have any, uh, any experience with? Boy, I don't. Those are tough. It would be, it would be fun. I don't, know of, I don't know of them right offhand. They're, they're tough to get through a state inspection. In many cases, number one is there isn't necessarily a, there aren't the manufacturers. You got to go overseas to find them to find the service and and uh, and the, and then get through the state inspection. But oh, wow. that's a cool thing. Yeah, we're we're running. We'll still run a traditional swing parlor on the dairies is what we're doing. Uh, okay, what is that? Can you explain that? Because I have no oh, idea what that is actually. Oh, totally. So what we're looking at with those parlors is you basically share one milking cluster for both sides of the parlor. So it it cuts a lot of you. It doesn't cut your equipment cost right in half, but it cuts it down considerably, and it allows you to put more stalls in the parlor. So the way these things, and, and this is why the management is, is a fair amount different than you know a lot of other dairy. Uh, we want to get these cows turned and we want to get them back out on grass as soon as we can. Uh, get them out of here, get them in. So we do try to put it in these efficient milking parlors where, you know, one or two people or a family can jump in and knock milking out in an hour and a half uh, oh, wow. and get right back out there. So, so we'll do that. So we've got, we run, uh, you know, the one farm is a swing 16 parlor and we can do, you know, right up about that hundred cows an hour and turn them and get them back out on grass. The other is a swing 24 uh, which will do that, you know, 125 cows per hour pretty easily. Uh, the other one, actually, the new farm has got a, a more traditional herringbone in it, but we are going to be converting that to a swing 16 uh, and, and run no standard type of a swing parlors. It's, a lot of these, this design has come out of New Zealand. So we try right. to get as many ideas as we can out of the New Zealand uh, management type of the systems uh, and bring them up here. Uh, but uh, that's where they're coming out of. Why New Zealand? That's they just got such a grazing footprint, right? Uh, they, they make they, their their main management system is managed grazing, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, and they manage. So Brian, they manage the grass in kilojoules, right? Isn't that based on energy metrics, which is amazing? Yeah very intensively managed grass, you know, and we're we're pretty good at it. Uh, you know, up here in a lot of these different areas, uh, you know, they're, from what I understand, very good at all. I mean, they're really, I mean, they're watching every kilogram of dry matter that they've got ahead of them, how much they're harvesting off and how many days of grass they've got ahead. 
Uh, and we're always watching that same thing too. You're always watching what's the next 20 days look like, because that is such a key to setting up these grazing farms is you can't have everything growing at the same rate because you're going to have incredibly lush, really good grass, you know, for a week. And then your whole farm's going to blow up and it's all going to look the same. You have a bunch of, you know, funky stemmy grass. Uh, and with dairy, you need to really, it, it takes an eye and you really need to have that good nutrition in front of them. Uh, it's not as flexible uh, and forgiving maybe as with grazing dry stock, either heifers or, or young stock, or even some of the, the livestock if you're not going right to finish on them. Uh, right. Because you no know immediately, you know, we just ran into that on our farms here too. You know, we, some of this got a little far ahead of us and you could see it immediately in the milk tank. Uh, so this is where you come in and you may drop a paddock. You may conventionally harvest the paddock uh, and use it for winter feed. Uh, and it's just a matter of doing that dance to try to set things up so that you've got 20 days of feed ahead of you or more, you know, obviously, ideally. But it's all got to be at different stages of growth so that when you get it to it, it's at that optimum stage of growth. And that's the real art, you know, behind managed grazing. So what what kind of forages so, are you managing or it doesn't sound like you're on, on native grass. It sounds like you're on planted forages most of the time. Yeah. So we'll run, there's a lot of just plain native bluegrass or June grass that we have up here uh, in, in a lot of these fields. So there's a lot of that. You just can't get away from there's, there's white clover in there too, but we'll come in and, and we try to run in a lot of improved grasses and we'll no-till in about a third of the ground every year. And we'll no-till in, um, you know, a lot of your newer red clovers, white clovers, some that'll hopefully try to uh, pull in a little bit more nitrogen. Uh, and then we're using metal fescues, softleaf fescues. Um, yeah, we haven't been using a whole lot of orchard grass, uh, festoleums, uh, and some, some rye grasses too we'll put in. We'll put in a, a pretty diverse uh, sward in there. So we'll just run around with that no-till. Uh, and our management system really is uh, keep it in sod. I mean, we, that's, that's what we do, you know, just try to do that whole balance of livestock and foot action and, and sod and keep that ground covered. Uh, I think that's so important just to keep everything growing in it. So we've got, you know, we've got sods that are, you know, 25 years old here that we've never touched except for no tilling. Uh, and it just never spun them over and they're incredibly productive. And if you manage them right, you give them enough rest yeah, you hit them hard and get off of them, get them that rest, boy. You can just keep improving them, you know, down the road. So that's that's how we run it. Without having to plow through it, I bet that's some pretty good soil. I bet that. Have Have you done any carbon testing there? We have not, you know, and, and we are looking at doing some of that stuff here also because um, this is just a whole other, you know, piece of what could be the catalyst? Are we talking about what could be the domino that yep. could help flip, uh, you know, a scalable change or a systems change uh, in agriculture and land management? Uh, and it really comes down to, all right, who wants us right now? And is it the consumer? Uh, is it the dairy industry itself? Uh, you know, what is it? And with the interest which is good in climate, climate mitigation, mm-hmm. uh, type of services. I do think that this could be that domino uh, where you come in and you actually create that true value of your practice based on what its climate mitigation potential could be. And let's do an actual 
positives and negatives uh, and do a complete assessment on it. And I think that's where we're going to see regenerative permanent ground cover type of management systems. Uh, if we can value and quantify it, I think that could clearly be that domino that could validate uh, these practices and take them to the financial markets and incentivize that. And I think it takes consumer product markets. Uh, yep. And it's going to take skilled people in the middle of it to link the whole works. So, so. there's, I just pulled, this is the, the big. That's how we met. Yeah. So that's how Joe yeah. and I met. Cause we're trying to figure out how we blow this thing up. <laughs> Well, and, and it really is. I mean, if you're going to, and you really need to look at this. And I think, you know, not only does it need to be done, uh, but I think there's a little bit of a, when you know the solutions, and right. the thing that can keep you up at night, when you know that there is a solution there, there's almost a sense of responsibility in a way that you need to make this happen uh, mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, and, and when you look at managed grazing, uh, livestock, dairy, whatever it may be, when you not only look at the economic uh, implications, just plain getting involved into it and uh, the profitability that, that could be into it down the road, but when you look at uh, its environmental impacts, uh, when you look at the environmental impacts and how they could link into consumer product markets, into financial markets uh, to help drive this whole thing, uh, and when you look at its impacts into uh, wildlife and even socioeconomic type of impacts in rural development. You can line that all up to a scorecard that would be second to none. And I think that's really what we need to look at to do one of these serious systematic changes out there. Uh, So when we look at, and and this has been some of the vision of DGA uh, to begin with, realizing again, and I'll say it again and again, because you can't, it's so important. It's people that are going to make this happen and are going to de-risk it. It's going to be the people that know how to do this on the land and the connections. So that's what you start with. You don't start with the investment fund or the consumer that wants a certain product. You start with the people first, and then you build these out. So this is the level that we're at right now, trying to build these pieces out. And we're looking for the strategic partners that say, yeah, I'm looking for that dairy disruptor. You know, I can see how financial markets, skilled people, and consumer markets can all line right up uh, and do a reset and a systems level scalable change. Uh, So this is really what we're trying to get set up and, and designed to do. Uh, in, in the scalable model that we're looking at based off of these types of managed grazing systems and the way to scale with integrity uh, is to say, okay, can we flat out create the new 3,000 cow dairy? And can that 3,000 cow dairy basically be a combination of 1,500 cow dairies, for example, yeah. uh, and 300 cow dairies, all in a 20-mile geographic area? all producing that same you know, commodity scale uh, and volume of milk uh, that has got a consistent uh, basic standards to it mm-hmm. that you could take to the market. Uh, and that would reduce the procurement cost because these are the Achilles heels of the small dairy, 
uh, of getting the, the managed grazing, the regenerative type of dairy farms. So much just has to do with the logistics of transportation. If you've got to have 40 right. spots to make a load of milk, that far, and this is the cost that's getting passed down to the farmers also. You can't get a product to market when you got that much cost into it. It'll, it'll yeah. outprice the market, and the farmer takes the beating at the other end in many cases. So this is just a way to say, okay, can we scale something with integrity by creating regional clusters like this mm-hmm, uh, where mm-hmm. we've got individuals that are coming into it that are learning the trade and that have got every opportunity to work up to a management level, to equity earning, and then ownership so that we could still have that 15 farms in a rural area all under independent ownership in time too. Uh, and then you've got that scalable volume of product uh, that you can take to the market based on the true value, the true value based on its climate type of a profile, on its carbon profile, obviously, its, its wildlife, its soil, its social economic profile, uh, even its fair and equitable governance type of a profile because you've got the ability of individuals to come up yeah. to Yep. A total workforce training program into ownership and entrepreneurship. Yep. And then you are actually, in a way, decentralizing by scale. Yes. Uh, yep. An industry which vertical integration is becoming its Achilles heel. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's take it a step farther and let's dump processing into these things then. Uh, and then now let's let's ship a product, a condensed product. Instead of, you know, 80 pounds of water, let's ship the chunk of cheese or the pound of butter uh, and let's service. They could be regionally based types of markets that would come out of it. I think we need to, if you're going to change something, change everything. And I think we need to think fearlessly. And if we really want to create systems of change and do a reset, we need to be looking at these things. And I think it can be done. It's not just a policy thing. It it's something we need to create. I think this can be done through pure business principles. Uh, and if you can align capital and innovative capital, uh, mm-hmm. and you can align the skilled people and the people on the ground to do it. And if you can align into consumer type of a markets and distribution, there you got it. I think we got that ability, especially if it's a scalable system. And I think that type of a model utilizing managed grazing dairy uh, focused in these I call them decentralized, scalable kind of uh, production areas, uh, utilizing farmers that have got 30 years of a career ahead of them. Uh, hey, maybe we could do something. You know, it, we're talking about how to get new people involved. And, you know, I really love your the idea of your dairy grazing apprenticeship. And maybe someday somebody will listen to this. And like I said earlier, Somebody listening to this podcast needs to jump on a regenerative grazing guild and your idea of it being funded by the beef checkoff, I think it's just absolutely fantastic. You know, the, the checkoff, I don't want to get down a rabbit trail yelling about the checkoff right now. I was wondering if you're going to say anything about it. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get Mike back for that or Mike Von okay. Massow or maybe have a, a checkoff roundtable where we can all... Oh, but there's different. It. There's a dairy one, and then there's beef, right? So yeah, there's pork. They all got to check off. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, you know, like skimming some of those checkoff funds to help train the next generation. Well, what I think that'd be a much better use of our checkoff dollars than where they're going now. 
I'm there. <laughs> I, I, I'd go for that. The, the thing you have to be careful of is which training program does it go to? You know, yeah. and, and just the reality, the nature of the beast, when you take a look at the large checkoff programs, is they need to cater to their largest constituents. And we, we hear this out of there. So if 90% of the milk is coming from larger scale dairy, yeah. whatever, there that checkoff money is going to go to an apprenticeship that's going to have a dairy manager or uh, a calf manager. I mean, there are 15 apprenticeships that you could almost do within a scaled 4,000 cow, 10,000 cow dairy. Um, and that's most likely where I could see, you know, but granted, if it's on a level playing field, they could come in. Hey, if, if a farmer could dictate where they want their checkoff to go to, that'd be kind of cool too. Oh, but, wouldn't that uh, be lovely? Wouldn't that be something? That's a, that's a whole different beast. You know, and, and then and I guess just, and just to go there a little bit too, when you look at the dairy industry, uh, when you look at policy, even you've got to be careful. You can spend a whole career trying to turn that ship. Uh, and just get a little piece of it done. Worthwhile, it can be, uh, but get a little piece. So as we look at trying to create a systems change, uh, really we are looking at that thing. If you can change something, let's change all of it, and let's look outside of status quo. I almost think so. Getting this program going, this was not something that came out of dairy. Dairy didn't want – this came out of water, People, this came out of, well, it was Beginning Farmer. So, obviously, Beginning Farmer Rancher Development, BFRDP program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throw a plug into that. That's what got this whole thing started. Uh, there's a little bit of Grazing Land Conservation Initiative, just the initial seed money, then BFRDP money. Uh, and then there's some NRCS Conservation Initiative money. Uh, but then it's some private foundations that are looking at rural development, and they're looking at water quality uh, that's in behind it. There's nothing from real, you know, conventional dairy uh, that's really coming into this at all. It just, it's off the radar. It's, uh, and then people, it, it, it's hard for, for that lead. It's hard to grasp what we're really talking about. Uh, and, and so many of the, like I said, the constituents are not in this camp. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're producing, they're very successful. They're producing the product in a different way. Uh, so it, a lot of this, like I said, it is a bit off the radar. You know, you gotta cater to that status, to that status quo. And that's, that's the role of so many of these organizations. So that is like, say why we took a look at this to say, we just need to forge forward. So when, when we look at these partners, so, and, and we are looking for partners, they, we're looking for that scalable, innovative finance. And then we're looking for that type of a team uh, that can, come in and help build this whole dairy disruptor out and get behind it. Uh, because, uh, you know, that's, that's what it takes. It's, it's just a pure business. It's an, an investment uh, and venture type of a, of a, of a thing with an incredible mm-hmm. amount of potential. So something you mentioned earlier, I want to circle back to, and cause I want to understand it. You met, you, you said share milking systems. And I've been sitting here and I'm conjuring up several different ways how that works. Um, so explain it. Explain what you meant by that. Yep. And, and actually, this is another thing from New Zealand. I mean, if you, t- you want to take a look at management systems uh, and you want to be in the business for a long time, 
where's the lowest cost management system? You take a look at managed grazing, you take a look at New Zealand, you know, Ireland and some of these other ones that are doing it that way. Uh, if you want to try to figure out okay, how I'm going to dairy when I've got a incredibly high land price uh, and supply services are really high, well, let's look at some of these developed areas that where it is that high, not necessarily developed areas, but areas where it is that high. Well, there's New Zealand again too. Um, share milking is a way for an individual to start investing into a dairy without like say bringing that whole elephant onto their balance sheet. So you may work into a dairy, uh, prove yourself, work up to a manager. Uh, you may start earning equity in cattle, or you're able to come in and, and bring a portion of the cattle there where you're actually are able to invest in cattle, maybe some of the basic equipment, but then you share a portion of the milk check now with the person that owns the actual dairy. And this could happen with an individual, with an investment entity, whatever it may be. But you come in and, and if you could bring all of the cattle, if you get to the point where you've got all the cattle and you've got the equipment to run it, uh, you may split that milk check. Uh, and then there is a formula that comes with it where, okay, you got X amount of feed you supply, you supply X amount of the, uh, the supplies, uh, daily supplies and the, to the farm. Uh, and then you just flat split that milk check, you know, 30... 37, whatever. Yeah. whatever it may be, 50, 50, 40, 60, whatever it could be. And and these are basically business arrangements. But to incentivize allows, them, right? Yeah. Yep. yep. And it allows, it obviously pays for good performance because you see it in the milk check. Uh, and then it also allows you to get that cash flow and that equity built up so you could start buying a chunk of that elephant uh, in time. And because you just flat need to be able to have that, X percentage down and you need to have enough cash flow to pay for principal. So I, I was, I was wondering what that concept was. Cause a, another thing that was bouncing around in my head is, you know, the milking parlor or, you know, whatever you guys use to milk, that's only used what 20% of the day. Yeah. So what if there is a guy next door that had some land and wanted to get into some dairy cows would there have you ever heard of anybody leasing out their milking facility to a neighbor for part of the day? Um, milking facility is a little bit tough. You know, a couple of things uh, is because you've got an actual milk license. You don't have to have a second milk tank there. You have to have a second operator there for just from the state regulatory thing. It's difficult. Uh, the other thing, in most cases, if you've got, you know, if I've got a chunk of land that cows can reach and 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 go to that land to come to the parlor. Boy, just from a straight business standpoint, you're better off investing in the cows and getting them to that land and, and doing it yourself. Too. Yeah, yeah, really, because you you need to be you need to be looking at some of these things to get enough hundred weights through, and and that is so a parlor should be able to service yeah whatever land that a cow can walk to from that center. Uh, you want to be bringing her through there. So uh, you, know, however, that doesn't you know when you look at some of these business models on how to get in and barriers of owning equipment. I mean, there's a lot of equipment that have wheels on it uh, that costs a lot of money. So there is uh, the ability to, yeah, you could share equipment or you just flat. There's more and more custom uh, people out there. And actually even at the, with the cows that we have and the land base we run, I still can't hardly justify having all of our own equipment. I'll still hire in, all the 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 forage harvesters and and the feed people and all the 
you know, all the field work done. Uh, so I even sold my round baler and disc bind last year, uh, which I feel bad because I was cut hay for the neighbor here. And uh, I only have a disc bind now to go cut there. <laughs> it's just a small field, so I got to figure out plan B there. But, yeah, it's just it – just, it, it, it's, it's the nature of the business and the costs of what everything has done. It's very difficult to be – hundred percent invested in, in each chunk of it. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, so yeah, that's, that, that is the nature of it. I, I think, you know, bottom line, you know, as, as we're visiting through a lot of this, you know, I think we're in the same camp. I mean, regenerative dairy and managed grazing, it, it has, it's got the tools. Uh, it's got the ability to address most, I bet every one of our issues, uh, and unintended consequences with large status quo animal agriculture. Uh, and it has got a lot of value to add to our industries in general too. And I think we need to realize that and our, our larger industries do need to realize that also, uh, that it can fill sectors that um, we always talk about. I mean, there's it can fill the milk sector that almonds are probably filling right now. Uh, so, and I think we really need to be looking at those types of things. It's not a one way or the other, a competitive type. Right. 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 Is this is all part of, uh, servicing that consumer and what they need out there. I wonder how many times a day they have to milk the almonds. Where are the teats? (laughs) (laughs) But I, I do think. So I've toured like the blue diamond growers processing facility and like they, their innovation is like, it's amazing because so, so what's come of it is, you know, they process the nuts, they dry them. And then they had all of these like leftover remnants of nuts that weren't good because they weren't the right shape and whatever quality. And then what did they decide to create almond flour and, and then almond, they juiced it and created almond milk and water. And so I do think that, you know, we could take a node out of their, their uh, processes. Like they really are becoming an in- innovative and adding value to, to their product they already have. And almond holes, like you guys, we feed that a lot to our, to our livestock is almond holes as a, as an alternative food feed stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I agree. You've got to be, you got to be innovative. You got to be innovative in this, in this world and in all these markets, uh, not only stateside, but it's, it's a global thing and yeah. uh, you, you need to be looking for those types of things. That's a, like I said, it, it can make it challenging. That can make it fun. That can, uh, you know, create obstacles or it can create opportunities. However you want to look at it. And right. I think there are, there's opportunity opportunities and fun in the whole thing. Uh, as you're trying to put these pieces together. And I think that's what we need to be looking at it here too. Um, so, and I, I think, you know, it's, I, I'm, I am very positive about and optimistic about livestock, about dairy, about agriculture. You know, I, I think there's a ton of potential. I think that the consumer uh, is becoming more and more aware all the time. There's technology mm-hmm allowing them to be more engaged. Uh, this climate thing also, and because it's a global problem and, it, and it's becoming more on the front stage, I think this does have the opportunity to come in and, and be that catalyst for some of these other production systems and, and some of these real conversations about 
you know, what is happening on the land and how does land need to be run and how does yep. consumer express their buying power, uh, whether it is directly through consumable products or maybe it is through climate type of markets and ESG type of markets. You know, is, is the consumer someday going to be priding themselves in being net zero independently? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, so I, I mean, I'm seeing it on my labels all the time now. Like my kombucha says carbon neutral kombucha yeah. and everything else has a, a little ESG label. Um, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I hate the, labels. Yeah, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I I think a lot of a lot of labeling claims about carbon neutrality yep. are very nebulous because I think there's a there, there's a lot of fraud, I think, mm-hmm. and and just outright bad science. You know, going out like in my background here, you can't go out to a national forest and say, we're going to conserve 900 acres of trees and that's our carbon offset for the year. Well, bullshit. The trees aren't going to be cut anyway. So you're not changing anything. You're not proactively managing to increase that carbon, right? So some of those claims I question and, you know, the thought I've been having for a little while, and I kind of made a note here, is I am concerned that, you know, the, the climate conversation and the coming carbon markets are going to lead to a corporate land grab where companies come out and they buy up these big farms, you know, and, mm-hmm. and degraded land and then hire minimum wage workers to implement their system. And then all the carbon payments flow back offshore. The profits flow back offshore and it ends up being another subsidy for, you know, private parties and other company in other countries like JBS and Marfrig and Smithfield. <laughs> uh, you yeah, get what I'm saying, though, right? Yes. Well, you know, a couple of things. You know, Brian, you're right. You know, welcome to capitalism and mad dog type of capitalism. That's just the way you know it goes. I think we've got the opportunity here, though, to uh, to look for um, uh, conscious capitalism uh, with integrity. Uh, that does want to come in. I think there's a more of a dialogue on that. So yes, when we look at a lot of the markets right now and, and the carbon markets and the environmental and climate type of markets, it's a wild west. Nobody knows exactly what's out there. There's a lot of them going off to the races right away with bad data, bad science. You know, I look at what's happening underneath the industry groups within agriculture uh, and they are doing a very good job of identifying status quo practices uh, and putting the climate, you know, um, benefit onto it and attaching it to it. Uh, You're going to see that. Now, I I think when we look at measurement, measuring change is not necessarily the solution. We still need to be able to, it's good. And that's what all the carbon markets are based on. There's one mm-hmm. that probably isn't, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the the thing and the reality of this is you need to still be able to uh, incentivize, or you need to be able to compensate for continued practices. To you know, right now the way I would capture the most money on a carbon market is to go into one of the existing ones. For example, the best way I could do it is to take my thousand acres of permanent grass. Uh, mm-hmm. Fill the whole works up, run monoculture and corn and just hammer that thing. Don't do cover crop. Don't do anything. 
Uh, and then, hey, I'm going to convert to managed grazing dairy. Then there's your additionality. There's, right? my, there's my money. So if I was a real business person, that's how I do it. Um, you know, to, to, you know, really take advantage of climate carbon markets as they are right now. I think there is a huge importance and a huge need to pay for or compensate or acknowledge continued practice uh, and not degradating, degradating uh, a piece of land and a piece of acreage and, and keeping it where it is. So keep a high producing one, high producing uh, so I think there there is a balance there with it, but I, I agree on a number of fronts. I, I'm glad you said something about that, you know, that if you really wanted to take advantage of the carbon market, you'd go till everything up right now and, you know, do corn well, beans and just, get asked is, and just strip the carbon out of it for two years yeah. and then sign up. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I, look at what I did. And, right. you know, I, I think we can all agree that that might be a little dishonest. And Absolutely. I don't, I, I don't think you would do that, and I definitely wouldn't either. You know, there's no way in hell I'm going to go plow up native range and, you know, to destroy the carbon so I could try to get more money for it. That's just absurd. It's like, you know, we'll take four steps backwards to get one forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's something. I think I, we're so far in the front end of this, but I do think you know, and, and this is my a little bit of our fear too, is as we're looking at the whole regenerative world. Uh, and, and the whole managed grazing permanent ground cover type of a world is, you know, we've got, I think, a, a relatively in the big picture of things, small window to identify and quantify the true value of these types of management systems. Uh, because large egg is going full steam ahead, quantifying and validating, you know, the type of the current systems that are out there and the really scaled systems and we need to have a voice at that table that clearly black and white validates uh, the true value of what a permanent ground cover and a regenerative system can do uh, down the road. Uh, and, and I think we, we owe it to it and we have to do that. We have to get out there with that value because, you know, could there be, could there be a point, and I think there maybe does need to be, uh, should anybody have to be net zero before they can sell anything? Right. And if that is the case, what agriculture system is net zero? It's managed grazing. That's it. When you take a look at it. So if you really want to go to agriculture and say, okay, just like business, uh, you can't sell a thing. You are a buyer unless you're net zero. That would be a tough conversation to have with agriculture right now. Ooh, Yeah. Yeah. There's your next podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I mean, if oh, you absolutely. playing field, uh, you know, the who's who are we selling credits to? Well, they're the the people that are net positive. They need to they need to get to net negative or net zero. Uh so when you really do the modeling, so and we've the three farms that we've got set up here right now, and these are the farms I have, we're really setting those up to create a beta model. So as we're looking for these innovators in the private world to come in uh, and really create a dis, this disruptor in dairy, um, we need to obviously create some of these betas. So that's what we're looking at within these three farms. We're, we're, we're demonstrating the scalability, uh, the ability to create a semi-load of milk, 
uh, and taking it to the market. Uh, we're looking at some of these credits and some of these uh, offsets uh, that could come in to help afford it and innovative finance, uh, and then obviously skill training on the whole thing. Uh, but as we're doing just some basic modeling on the, the third farm that we just pulled onto the platform, uh, which was uh, row crops for years, it can actually have a net carbon or a net increase in carbon that it's sequestering. If we put typical modeling against it and we would do even cover crops, uh, it's still a net emitter of carbon. Uh, it is not net zero at that point. And that's just through initial, the models and the studies that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, when you take a look at it. And uh, I don't know. I think we need to be, you know, if you're going to play in these markets, just like playing in, uh, in what dairy management system do you want to adopt to be in this for a long term? You know, I'm going to adopt the one that has got the lowest cost of production, uh, that has got the most potential to play with whatever regulations could come on out there uh, and hit new consumer markets out there. Uh, and I think that's uh, something we need to be watching in this climate markets also. Wow. Yeah. It's the, it, it is the wild west. And oh, yeah. I think the rest mm -hmm. of the, you know, as we move through the rest of 2021, a lot of things are going to develop at the, I'm not going to say I'm frightened by the speed of change and the speed of information, you know, these days, but the speed of change and the rate at which information gets disseminated, you know, to all corners of an industry or to a sector is, is it's, it's staggering how fast things are moving now and how fast public opinion is changing too, like, mm -hmm. especially about their food systems. We've seen such a rapid shift in the last 18 months of people wanting to be interested in their food and taking part in their food production. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and we've seen demonstrations on, you know, yeah. Whole different thing, too, is when you take a look at the food system, I mean, in all reality, and, and this is a national security issue. Uh, when you look at our current food system right now and, and the ability, it is so centralized and, and so streamlined, the ability to shut down, um, you know, plants and processing and impact the whole supply chain with a flick of a switch, that's a big deal. Uh, and, and when you, and you really need to look at that, obviously, as a, as, as a security issue. Uh, if, if you had, and this is a whole other conversation, if you had uh, an efficient regional type of a system or a non-scaled or a non-vertically integrated one, you'd be a lot less vulnerable. You'd be so much more diversified uh, and a lot less vulnerable to so many of these things. And I think just from that standpoint, uh, in regards to, you know, a big systems manager, you would sure think that you'd want to have your, your foot in a number of these different buckets and you'd want to diversify uh, supply chains uh, and production and management systems uh, just to give you more resilience for whatever is coming next. 
That's just me. I live on a different. No, I agree. Something is coming next, though. So it's not for when whatever's coming next. Something is coming next. Like, I, I truly believe something is coming it next. Is. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, what systems can give you the most diversification and resilience to whatever curveball is going to hit you next. And, I mean, there's curveballs out there that we have got no control over. And, you know, whether it is, you know, just uh, something – Mechanical, uh, technological, or environmental. Uh, yeah, six dollar diesel fuel. Yeah, yeah. Cracking the pipelines like that. That was you know, someone was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for security and it got hacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, nobody's nobody's invincible. No. Yep. So. Oh. So Joe, I think it's been a great conversation from you at a perspective about disrupting the dairy industry with decentralized systems of scale with integrity. Oh yeah. There you go. So have, have we left anything on the table today, Joe? Uh, you know, I think we covered a lot. I appreciate the, I appreciate the conversation and the platform. Uh, I'd encourage anybody if uh, you know, jump on Google dairy grazing apprenticeship, if you've got any interest, you know, my, Address is on there also if you ever want to reach out. If anybody's got any questions, I can be reached at joe at dga-national.org. Um, and, you know, it is an educational platform. It's a workforce development platform. Uh, but it is a lot more that mm-hmm. we're looking at. It is realizing that these are the keys and people are the keys to so much more. And those are the conversations I'm looking at having with, with individuals that see this. So I appreciate it, you guys. You know, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, People are the key. And this is, uh, what is this, Carissa? Episode 20, I think. It's getting close to that, yeah. I I think this is going to be episode 20. Um, We haven't really talked much about people. We're going to fix that. We're going to fix that uh, coming up in a couple weeks. We're going to start a people management mini series. Um, Hmm. I already have the first guest for that booked. Still working on the next couple. Hope everybody comes back for that. And if you have any anything you want to know about people management, bring that question to Ranching Reboot Paddock, and we'll try to get it answered for you. So, CK, did uh, anything else on your mind we need to cover today? No, I just thought this was a beautiful way to wrap our dairy series, and what you're doing, Joe, is is, a, is amazing. I can't believe how many hats you you wear, and you just show up with the perfect energy. So I just want to emulate that. That's we appreciate your time. Great. Thanks to you guys. And likewise, likewise, I appreciate all the work you're doing, the platforms you're creating and, and keep doing the good work. And that's a great place to stop. So thanks again for your time, Joe. Red Hills Rancher out. <laughs>